coming up on The Exam Room. Part of what we discovered in this study is that there is a shift in the microbiome that takes place. So, for example, people who partake in social jet lag on the weekends, going to bed 90 minutes later, waking up 90 minutes later, this group of people, they have six specific species of microbes that are more profoundly represented in their group compared to people who are going to bed on a consistent time, whether it's Friday and Saturday night. And if you look at those six species that are represented in the social jet lag group, basically three of them are overtly, clearly defined as inflammatory. And the other three are, you know, maybe a little bit closer to neutral, definitely on the inflammatory side of neutral, meaning that they're not actually helping you. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Santa Clarita, California, Meridian, Idaho, and Brisbane, Australia. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 69 of season 6, number 465 overall. We know that what you eat makes a huge difference in your gut health. But what about some good old-fashioned sleep? Well, a new study is showing that even small changes in your sleep patterns can make a big difference in the type of gut bacteria that you have cooking up in your belly. The same gut bacteria that's connected to your risk of diabetes and heart disease, even obesity. This is an interesting study because we've known for a very long time that people who work overnight are at higher risk for issues with their health. But this is the first study to look at smaller shifts in sleeping patterns, just going to bed a couple of hours earlier or later than normal, for instance. And the findings are fascinating. So waking up our minds to this big sleep study is Dr. Will Bolswitz, board-certified gastroenterologist and two-time New York Times best-selling author, the man known to millions as the Gut Health MD. He joined me on The Exam Room Live this week, and as a reminder, you can join us too every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook pages. So we got together and took a good, hard, close look at this study. We're going to be talking about that today. Also, the foods that can help you fall asleep and the ones that'll keep you up at night. Speaking of staying up, going to be talking about coffee and caffeine and how they also could affect your gut health. And then going to switch gears a little bit. Maybe you've heard on social media something about an internal shower. It's really blowing up out there, and Dr. B is going to weigh in on this. What is the internal shower anyway, and how could it possibly affect your gut health? Dr. Bolsowitz has those answers and a lot more. But before we get rolling, we talked about this on the last episode. We announced it, the big exam room live and in person. A night with the Esselstyn family is coming to Washington, D.C., 
on November 7th at the National Press Club. And I would love for you to join me and Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, his wife, Anne, and then Rip Esselstyn from Plant Strong is coming back. Jane Esselstyn, his sister and co-author of How to Be a Plant-Based Woman Warrior. She also will be on the stage that night. The entire family, we are going to be honoring their lifetime of achievements and making the world a healthier place. And it would be epic if you could join us there as well. Tickets are on sale. Now there's a link to grab yours in the episode notes or in the show description. So go ahead, mark your calendars, November 7th, National Press Club in Washington, D.C. for a night with the Esselstyns. Brought to you by The Exam Room Live. But right now, let's take a closer look at this study, the microbiome and your sleep. Here's what you need to know with our good friend, the Gut Health MD, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Good to see you, Dr. B. Good to see you, Chuck. Let's dive into this study, my friend, because uh, actually we should start by letting everybody know that this study was conducted by Zoe and you sit on Zoe's scientific advisory board. Nonetheless, the results of the study here still very sound. Um, so let's talk about this. In terms of our sleep, how important is it based off of these findings for our microbiome that we rise and shine at the same time every day? Yeah, I think what we're seeing with the study, Chuck, so let's let's kind of dig into some of the results from the study so that people understand and then we can kind of unpack what it means and how you need to, you know, what, what sort of actionable tips you can take away from it. So um, we've known for a long time, you mentioned this, that people who are shift workers, we, we're very grateful for them, our nurses, police officers, firefighters, et cetera, um, people who work at night. There's, metabolic, there's actually metabolic consequences to this. These are people that it can disrupt their insulin sensitivity. It actually causes weight gain and in other ways can affect their metabolism. Um, but the question with this study is how about small changes? Small changes that literally any of us potentially could do regardless of our career choices. What if you are the kind of person who goes to bed later, and sleeps later on the weekends. And that was what we were addressing with this study, um, where the question was, what happens for people who have a 90-minute shift in their sleep, meaning going to bed 90 minutes later and waking up 90 minutes later or more on the weekends? Now, we call this social jet lag. You're not getting on a jet, but it's conceptually the same as changing time zones. You've shifted everything by an hour and a half as a result of this. It'd be like shifting your time zone by an hour and a half. Um, so what does this do to the actual body? And there's a couple of things that we found, Chuck. So um, first of all, people who do social jet lag, meaning that they, they have different sleep patterns on the weekends, they also eat differently. Reduction in dietary quality, eating less plants, less fruit specifically, less nuts specifically, and what were they going for? Chuck, let me kick this back to you, and I'd be curious if people want to drop this into the chat because I know we have a lot of friends here with us on, on Facebook and YouTube. When you're tired, let's pretend you had a horrible night's sleep last night, okay? You got three hours of sleep. What do you reach for the following day in terms of food? 
Well, I'd be curious what people think. Let's go back to old, old, old Chuck version 1.0 to answer that question. It sure as heck was not going to be any sort of fruit or even uh, what many would consider to be a healthier breakfast cereal. We are going full blown McDonald's sausage McMuffin. We are going bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. We are going for all things that are high in fat and calories and probably not what does a body good. That's what I was going for in the morning. When your body is low on energy, you seek, this is a natural thing. This, by the way, happens often with people. We could, we could talk more about this too. There's a different study that we did at Zoe where we showed that people can have what's called a blood sugar dip occurring about three hours after a meal. So think about your afternoon, three in the afternoon, you had lunch at noon and you're feeling like super fatigued and tired. There's actually potentially a physiologic explanation for that. Your blood sugar dips. And what we found, Chuck, in that study is that people actually tend to overeat and they gravitate, gravitate towards simple carbohydrate foods. When you feel that fatigue, your brain is actually not receiving the blood sugar that it needs. And as a result, your brain flips into an energy-seeking sort, uh, an energy-seeking mode where it says, give me sugar, give me simple carbohydrate foods, give me potato chips. So the same is true when we wake up fatigued after a horrible night's rest. Yes, we want our coffee. Yes, we make poor dietary choices. That's one of the things that we saw in this study. People who have social jet lag, they, they, their dietary quality is reduced. So that's going to McDonald's and getting the you know, sausage McMuffin. But the other thing that's very clear is they dramatically increase their intake of simple carbohydrate foods. The number one food that they were reaching for in an increased fashion were um, sugar-sweetened beverages, meaning like sodas, sweet teas, Kool-Aid. And then the the other thing that was really um, quite noticeable and statistically significant is they were going for potatoes, but they're not, (laughs) we're not talking about mashed potatoes. We're talking about chips. Mm. So people are eating chips and drinking soda the day after because they feel tired. And this is what they naturally gravitate to in that context. What do you think? I think that that makes sense. I think even subliminally, people probably reached for the sodas and the Kool-Aid and those sugar-sweetened beverages, as the medical community calls them, um, that you get that quick hit. You don't even have to wait for anything to digest. It's almost like an instantaneous rush, right? Same reason if you get something like a, I just posted something like this on Instagram today. Like I used to love the caramel macchiato from Starbucks, right? It's an instant hit. And so in that case, you're getting the double dose of the sugar and the caffeine, and that'll make you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, or so you think. Um, but, I mean, what does the study show, though? Like, obviously, our inhibitions are lowered because of sleep deprivation. So, like, is it the consensus that it's the lack of sleep, or is it the poor choices, the poor dietary choices that are driving these microbiome changes? Right. So, so uh, part of what we discovered in, in this study is that there is a shift in the microbiome that takes place. So, for example, people who um, partake in social jet lag on the weekends, going to bed 90 minutes later, waking up 90 minutes later, this group of people, they have six specific species of microbes that are more profoundly represented in their group compared to people who are going to bed on a consistent time, whether it's Friday and Saturday night. And if you look at those six species that are 
represented in the social jet lag group, basically three of them are overtly, clearly defined as inflammatory. And the other three are, you know, maybe a little bit closer to neutral, but definitely on the inflammatory side of neutral, meaning that they're not actually helping you. Okay. So these six species basically contributing to inflammation. And what we actually saw is that people who embark, uh, partake in social jet lag, they also had increased levels of inflammation detectable in their blood. So now this is all um, quite fascinating. You asked me a question. Does the diet explain the microbiome? Well, this was looked at. And basically what you do is something called a mediation analysis. A mediation analysis is saying, how much does this contribute to this? And what they found is that, yes, diet does contribute to the microbiome changes that we saw. So when people like reduce their dietary quality, drink more soda, eat more potato chips, yes, that does contribute. But how much? 9%. 91% is not diet. And that's where it gets very interesting to consider the effect of this sort of 90-minute shift. Wow. Hold on. Hold on. Rewind that back. 91%. That's huge, man. That's that's absolutely enormous. And when we're talking in terms of like even these these small shifts, you know, staying up a little bit later on Friday or Saturday nights and then a little bit more sleep deprived come Monday morning. I mean, in the span of just 72 hours, even a little bit less, how big of a change in microbiome are we talking about here? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that th- these look, I, I think one bad night's rest all of us go through that at times. I actually had it happen last night, to believe it, believe it or not. Uh-oh. Um, and we can unpack this a little bit because we have other stuff that we could talk about related to my personal sleep pattern that happened last night and the night before, resulting in horrible scores on my recovery on my whoop. Oh, no. um, yeah, we can talk about this. What's going on with the, uh, with the old doc, man? How come you're not sleeping at night? We don't have to go that deep in that, but, you know. Get no, we talked about this. I'm actually okay. amazing. I'm actually one of my talents that no one knows about except for my wife is that I'm a great sleeper. <laughs> I'm a great sleeper. I'm a very deep sleeper. I hit the pillow and within three minutes, I'm out. And I will wake up, you know, I will wake up when the sun comes up the next day. Um, so, but uh, what's interesting is that I've had this week a series of meetings at eight o'clock at night. All right. So from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. And I'm in front of this light, the same light that I have shining on me right now, blasting the back of my retina, um, basically telling my body that it's like the middle of the day at eight, nine o'clock, right? I mean, my body is basically like getting crushed with very bright lights that, and the signal is basically saying to the body, you're nowhere close to being, to going to bed right now. Okay. So, and this is one of the issues is that when we're exposed to bright light in the evening, which I was doing for meeting purposes, you know, one of them was a meeting with my uh, plant-fed gut masterclass that we do every Monday night. We have a meeting and we basically do a live Q&A. And then the other was a meeting that I was having with some colleagues from Australia, which they're just, you know, they're in such a different time zone. I have to do it late at night. So, but the issue here is that when we do this, we actually strike down melatonin which is the body's natural hormone, to allow us to fall asleep in a healthy, natural way. And the problem is that melatonin in the evening is the anchor for our circadian rhythm to allow us to achieve good sleep. 
So even though I went to bed at a reasonable time, like I went to bed last night at 11 o'clock, Chuck. Okay. Um, normally I go to bed at 10 to 10 30. So I was off by 30 to 60 minutes, not by 90 minutes. I don't qualify for the social jet lag in this case, but I went to bed at 11 and before I went to bed, and this is something else I'd like to talk to you about if we can, I drank a, a large glass of tart cherry juice. Hmm. And the reason why is because there are studies showing that tart cherry juice actually can help with sleep and help to restore melatonin. So I was aware. I was aware of this problem that I was like exposed to too much light. And I was trying to boost up my melatonin naturally by doing tart cherry juice. Now, Chuck, my sleep scores this morning were good. I, I slept extremely deep. But my recovery score on my wearable technology was terrible. It was completely terrible. And it was terrible on Tuesday morning too. So I have Tuesday, today's Wednesday. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, I, so that's two consecutive days with a horrible recovery score after multiple days in a row of recovery scores that were about 90. What was it about these two days? The issue was I was actually disrupting. I was creating my own form of social jet lag because I was disrupting the quality of my sleep by exposing myself to bright light. So here's what I would say to that's actionable to the people, the exam roomies. Number one, you need to wind down on the light in the evening. Try to stay away from the bright lights. Try to not sit too close to the television. In a better world, you read a book under dim light. That's the ideal. Mm. Try not to get your laptop in your face or even your phone in your face. If you can turn down the brightness on your phone or go to the black back screen, do at least that. Um, and number two, the flip side, by the way, Chuck, is in the morning, all right? So one of the things I did to try to get myself ready for tomorrow, this morning, is I took our baby Susie and we went outside this morning. And the reason why is because the opposite is actually true as well. So we are trying to avoid bright light in the evening. And in the morning, you're trying to receive bright light. So rather than staying inside, even looking out the window, at what's happening outside. Instead, go outside. And the light that bounces off the back of your retina tells your body, it is morning. It is time to go and start our day and be prepared for about 12 hours from now when it's time to wind down again. So basically, bright light in the morning, no bright light in the evening. That's what we need. All right. Um, let's, I, I think that there's probably, Dr. B, a, a lot of people wondering right now, like, well, what goes into this sleep recovery score? What goes into the sleep quality scores? Can you just briefly walk us through those? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it, it, I have a couple. I'd be curious. Go to the chat box, everyone, and tell me if you if you have a wearable device and which one you have. So it could be a Fitbit, Apple Watch. Um, this right here, this is the, uh, the Aura Ring. Um, and then I have my whoop strap. I have an Apple watch as well. Um, but I've been wearing my whoop strap recently. All right. So, uh, what does, for example, the sleep look like in the whoop? Well, they're looking at basically like how much time you slept, but also the sleep phases. So there's light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep. All right. So deep sleep and REM sleep are the two forms of recovery sleep that you, your body really needs. REM sleep, by the way, rapid, it's called, that stands for rapid eye movement. 
And when we're in REM sleep, that's when we're having our deepest dreams. That's when you have those very visual dreams. Um, and uh, and actually, what if you were to look, like perhaps you have someone that you share a, a bed with, if you look, you will actually see their eyes like darting around when they're actually having this. And that means they're actually having dreams and they're not able to move in that moment. So that's REM sleep. Okay. Deep sleep plus REM sleep is basically your total time for recovery. That is your total recovery time. And in a perfect world, you would love to be somewhere in the range of three hours. Last night, I was like three hours and 13 minutes. I was in a great place, nice, deep sleep. But the recovery score is slightly different. Good sleep does often translate into a good recovery, but good sleep does not automatically translate into a good recovery. Here's an example where this has failed me. So even though I got all this great deep sleep and REM sleep, um, my recovery score was low, and that's because it takes a look at things like heart rate variability, resting heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate. Now, heart rate variability, Chuck, have we talked about this on the show? No, this would be a first, especially with you, my man. Okay. So heart rate variability, let me explain it like this, okay? Um, imagine that your heart is beating 60 times per minute. You're going to make it nice and simple. That's basically, you know, averaged out over a minute, one time every second, your heart goes squeeze, 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 right? But the way that our body actually works is that actually it's not exactly every second. In fact, when your heart beats, there's little variations. One time it might be slightly more than a second. The next time it might be slightly less than a second. Yes, it averages out, but there's these variations. And that's because you have this balance between your sympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is fright and flight. This is like your adrenaline. And the parasympathetic nervous system is rest and relax. This is like you're laying on the couch after a delicious meal and just relaxing. Okay, so you have this balance between these two parts of your nervous system. And because they're in balance, it would make these um, little fluctuations in terms of how your heart beats. We call that your heart rate variability. High heart rate variability scores are great. This is what you want. Low heart rate variability indicates that your body is under stress. When you have unopposed activation of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic is kind of not really there to check it, this is when, what happens when your body is under stress and it reduces your heart rate variability. So we want a high heart rate variability now, your heart rate variability, for those of you, I've seen many of you who have told us that you have these uh, devices. So you can use this, what we're talking about right now, you can use this in your own life. It's about your baseline. It's not about my baseline and comparing to my scores. It's about comparing to your own scores and trying to elevate these scores and finding the things that help to elevate these scores versus finding the things that lower the score, which is what you don't want. So essentially what I've discovered here, Chuck, and the reason why my uh, recovery scores were completely terrible on Tuesday and Wednesday is because uh, even though I was doing many of the things that have helped me to normally get great scores, I was completely throwing myself out of whack with the bright lights that I was receiving at eight to nine o'clock at night. Um, and it's like quite clear because when I don't put myself under bright lights at night, I have actually really good heart rate variability scores. A quick little thing. Let me share this. This is a quick little hack for people. I want to. I want to encourage you to try this. If you have one of these um, wearable technologies that gives you a heart rate variability, I want you to try this. Try either uh, 
tart cherry juice, eating cherries before bedtime, or if you're not caffeine sensitive, I am not caffeine sensitive. I could drink caffeine and go straight to bed. If you're not caffeine sensitive, green tea. Try one of these things, tart cherry juice, eating cherries, or green tea before like an hour before bedtime and see what happens to your heart rate variability if you do this. And what you will find is that like what I have found is that it tends to raise my heart rate variability. But the problem is that what I've discovered during my experimentation these last two days, Chuck, is that my heart rate, vi- heart rate variability tanks when I put myself under bright lights at, at night. So this is a lesson that I'm, ha- I'm having to learn. And I'm going to have to figure out something with these uh, meetings with Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if you crack that code, let me know, man. Maybe they'll develop AI so you can get some shut eye and you'll have virtual Dr. B holding things down for you for the time being. Um, Let's go ahead and open up the doctor's mailbag. We have a lot of questions and a lot of people are wearing a whole lot of these different devices, everything from Apple to Fitbit. You have some fancy beds, whatever. Um, But it seems like people are pretty plugged in checking out their health, man. So those are really good tips. Uh, You were talking about coffee and your love of caffeine. Hagen has a question, sent this one a little bit earlier. How do coffee and caffeine affect gut health? Uh, actually, we've done some research at Zoe that's shown that there are specific microbes that are enhanced when people drink coffee. So, and um, it actually makes a lot of sense because the pattern that exists within your microbiome is created by your personal patterns. So, for example, if you're the kind of person who occasionally consumes legumes, well, that occasional consumption of legumes, yes, it will have an effect on your microbiome, but it's not its not going to have the same effect that if you were to consistently on a daily basis consume legumes. Well, the thing about coffee is that the vast majority of us as coffee drinkers, or insert whatever beverage of your choice, could be tea as well, the vast majority of us, we're highly consistent because it's our morning ritual. So you wake up, you have your coffee, you probably have a second or a third cup of coffee. You do it every single day. And when you do this every single day, guess what that's going to do to the microbiome? It's going to reinforce the microbes and continue to crank them up so that the the association that exists is very powerful. So we know that coffee has a clear effect on the microbiome. Now, why is that? There's a couple things, Chuck, about coffee that that is unique and I think fantastic. Coffee is a plant-based beverage. It is derived from plants. And the coffee bean itself, it has polyphenols has something called chlorogenic acid, which has been shown to be beneficial. And also, believe it or not, it has fiber. Like, how does it have fiber? I can't, like, there's no grit in my in my coffee. I looked at Johnny Manziel there when I just did that. <laughs> For those of you who have seen the Netflix documentary. Um, Johnny so, Football. Yeah, Johnny Football. So why, how, is, how is it possible that there's fiber in my coffee? There's no grit there. It's soluble fiber. Soluble fiber that still continues to be a part of the coffee, even though you roast it, even though the bean is not actually in your beverage, you still get the soluble fiber. So the point being the soluble fiber, the chlorogenic acid, the polyphenols are having an effect on the microbiome. All right. Uh, let's get a two-parter here from Jill, wondering what are some good foods that might help you go to sleep? Anything that you know of that would make you sleepy? And then talking about caffeine, what are some foods though? that might also have that same caffeinogenic effect and keep you up a little bit later if you're sensitive. Yeah. Um, So with regard to uh, going to sleep, there's a reason why I specifically mentioned the cherries and the tart cherry juice. And that's because actually the cherries and the tart cherry juice, our body 
were talking about this before, our body produces melatonin in the evening. Now you can disrupt that with a bright light, but when our body is working the way that it's supposed to, it starts to get dark outside, our body starts to increase melatonin production, and that helps us to get a good night's rest. Cherries, actually, believe it or not, are a natural source of melatonin. You don't have to take a supplement. You can chew on cherries or drink some cherry juice. And actually, there's very clear evidence, Chuck, that people who regularly consume tart cherry juice, by the way, I, I saw that there was a person who asked how much, it's eight ounces. People who regularly consume eight ounces of tart cherry juice actually get better sleep. So this can be part of your sleep sort of, uh, let's call it hygiene, because that's the term that we would use, or your sleep ritual, where you're winding down, you're trying to get away from the bright lights, and you perhaps have a, a glass of tart cherry juice, or you eat some cherries in the evening. One other thing, Chuck, uh, foods that are high in magnesium. So, um, and this includes things like nuts. It's pistachios come to mind. Because pistachios boost melatonin and also have magnesium. So, and this is the reason why I think pistachios make for a great sleep food. Chuck, you asked me about stimulation. Yes, sir. Uh, what are the ones that are going to keep us up? Yeah. So, uh, certainly, if you are caffeine sensitive, you have to be careful about the caffeine rich foods um, and beverages, of course, coffee and tea, but it could also be chocolate. So you have to be aware that that chocolate has caffeine in it. This is part of the reason why actually chocolate can exacerbate acid reflux. From a supplement perspective, there is uh, a root, a root called maca, and maca actually like again, you could eat maca, but most people don't have access to this. But it's readily available as a supplement. Maca is actually very stimulating. In fact, um, it's grown in South America. And the, uh, I believe it was the Incan warriors used to actually consume maca prior to going into battle. And this was to like basically like invigorate themselves prior to, you know, doing something that was very, um, uh, required a lot of energy. So, so anyway, maca is something to be aware of. All right. Good deals. Uh, take a question from Rich who is wondering about alcohol and the microbiome here. And I'll take that a step further. Talking about sleep, a lot of people reach for a glass of wine or maybe a cocktail or a beer at the end of the day to kind of take that stress off and fall asleep. What do we know in terms of alcohol, sleep, gut health, all of the above, my friend? Here's what we know. First of all, um, I don't think this comes as a major surprise, but people who uh, consume alcohol heavily it is completely disruptive to the microbiome. In fact, the manifestations of alcohol, chronic alcohol use on the liver are actually deeply tied to the effect of alcohol on the microbiome. In other words, there are people who, um, we can't predict who these people are, but they drink more alcohol and yet they seem to get away with it and not have health-related complications in terms of their liver. Um, these people, it appears that their microbiome is more healthy and able to hold up for whatever reason compared to the person who consumes more alcohol and actually has a da has damage to their microbiome. And as a result of that, um, actually manifests the consequences of, of alcohol-related liver disease. So now that is like making it sound like, um, like, hey, it's the only thing that you need to be afraid of is heavy alcohol consumption that can potentially lead to cirrhosis. Actually, that's not true. Um, Chuck, there was a study that was done that I found to be quite fascinating, 
where they were basically tracking um, levels of something called bacterial endotoxin that exist in the body um, related to damage to the gut barrier. All right, so when our microbiome is injured, our gut barrier starts to break down. And when it breaks down, it starts to release what's called this bacterial endotoxin into the bloodstream. And then you can, you can measure it. So if you were to track bacterial endotoxin, you know, every 15 minutes and have a person consume alcohol, this is the study that they did, they found that they could actually track the alcohol levels going up and coming down. And what was interesting is that the actual pattern of bacterial endotoxin levels tracked exactly with the alcohol. So in other words, as alcohol levels in the blood go up, so does the production of bacterial endotoxin, which is an, a marker of injury to your gut, to your microbiome, to your gut barrier. So even to uh, drinks of alcohol, I think, can be problematic. All right. I want to say cheers to a healthy cheers to a bunch of exam roomies hanging out with us today. We haven't done a roll call yet, Dr. B. Rich is checking in from Sacramento. Karen is in Germany. We also have Sonia checking in from sunny Arizona. Sherry is in Portugal. And another Sherry, oh, we got two Sherrys today, uh, is watching in central Delaware, where she's bird watching in addition to watching the exam room live. So thank you guys for tuning in coast to coast and around the world, raising your health IQs with us. I'm telling you, Dr. B, it never ceases to amaze me that we do have that global audience. Although after talking about sleep studies, I'm a little bit concerned for our viewers right now in Australia who are up a little bit late raising their health IQs. I mean, you might want to save this one for on-demand viewing when you wake up in the morning. I don't know. That's just my thought. Yeah, totally agree. <laughs> um... In the famous words of a group of British comedians, and now for something completely different, let's take a question from Linda. Says, I saw this on Dr. B's uh, Instagram recently. What is the internal shower and is it actually healthy? What in the heck is Linda talking about, man? <laughs> the internal shower needs a new name. This is a, this is a trend that started on TikTok, which... Um, those of you who follow my work, you probably know how much I love TikTok. I don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like it at all. But uh, and my children certainly will not be using TikTok anytime soon. But anyway, um, this is a trend that started on TikTok. Like many trends that start on TikTok, uh, you have to sort of be skeptical and take a look and, and make some decisions on whether or not you think it's legit. Basically, what's happening here is that they take... Um, water and two tablespoons of chia seeds and a squeeze of lemon and that's your beverage and you drink that okay so two tablespoons of chia seeds uh about a liter of water and um, a squeeze of lemon and then you drink this and the point is that it helps you to poop all right i actually don't have a problem with this tiktok trend it's shocking the reason why that I don't have a problem with this is because chia seeds actually are incredibly good for us. A great source of fiber. If you, if you consume two tablespoons of chia seeds, you're getting pretty close to 10 grams of fiber, which is amazing. Because if you took, for example, the average woman who consumes 25, consumes 15 grams of fiber per day, and they added this 
they would be up to 25. And 25, although the lower limit of what is considered to be the recommended amount, it still is at least you're getting to the lower limit of the recommended amount rather than being 10 grams below the lower limit. So you do get 10 grams of fiber from this beverage. That's the benefit. What I would say is I think that we can do it even better. If you were to take this beverage, and actually what I do is I get a spice grinder and I actually grind up, not like grind to a flour, but just loosely grind up to break up these chia seeds and open them up. And by doing this, um, still creating a beverage using two tablespoons of chia seeds, yes, you get 10 grams of fiber. You also get access to one of the best sources of plant-based omega-3s that exists. So um, it's a beautiful thing where you can get your fiber, your healthy omega-3 fats, and you can do this in a form of a beverage that's easy to drink once a day. Beautiful thing, but we're talking about a TikTok trend, which means that this is a visual medium. And I'm curious, how far do these TikTok videos go? Do we get the before and the after? Like, do you get the whole experience? Basically, I'm asking you if the phone goes into the bathroom with the person. Like, my God, man, I'm just not liking the road this is going down. <laughs> well, um, I, I can't answer because I haven't spent enough time on TikTok. Or like, I, I don't really pay attention to what these kids are doing. Um, I sound like my dad. But these kids. Oh, man, you've reached that age, man. Yeah, well, I think that they, they deserve it, to be honest with you. But nonetheless, um, no, I don't really pay attention to what these kids are doing. But uh, what I will say, though, is that there is something to be said for good, healthy, good, healthy, regular bowel movements. So, and, and I do believe that this can be something that can help in terms of, again, water and chia seeds, lots of fiber. So if you grind them up, you get both soluble and insoluble fiber. If you don't grind them up, then it would be mostly just uh, insoluble fiber. But nonetheless, um, if it helps you to produce good, regular, healthy bowel movements, then I'm declared victory on that. All right, let's take a, <laughs> boy, let's get off this topic in a hurry. Uh, let's take a question from Nilly at 1231. You were talking a little bit ago about pistachios, and they are wondering whether they should be opting for the salt-free version of pistachios. Um, I don't, so I actually saw another person who commented that I advocate for salt intake and advocate for oil intake. And I don't actually think that's a proper representation of my position on these things. Um, so how do I feel about salt? I don't think that you should be excessively consuming salt. The average person in the United States is ex excessively consuming salt. And for that reason, I think that the average person needs to reduce their salt intake. And one of the ways that you could do that would be to alt opt for the salt free uh, pistachios in this case. That being said, the average American is consuming, uh, getting 60% of their calories from ultra processed foods, which are preserved with salt. There are reasons why these foods contain salt. And, um, are we unhealthy by consuming salt in our diet? Absolutely not. You need salt in your diet. You just don't need excessive amounts of salt in your diet. So when we are consuming a normal amount of salt, which may include foods that are salted, may include foods that are fermented and contain salt, but you are consuming it within a normal amount of salt. You're completely fine. So if you have substantially reduced your salt intake, um, like I think to vilify and reduce salt to inherently bad, I hate to break this to you, but if you completely eliminate salt from your diet, you will not live very long. You need salt. It is a necessary part of your diet. With oil, you know, I would say additionally that I'm not here to advocate that people uh, maximize the oil in their diet. You will never see a video of me 
taking shots of olive oil. That's not, <laughs> that's not my position on this. Um, my position on this is improvement of dietary quality. And the average person in the United States is consuming lots of butter. And if they replace that with extra virgin olive oil, they will be much healthier. And there is no doubt about that. And the research is clear. All right. Uh, let's grab a... Man, we got some good ones in the mailbag right now. Let's go back to 1215. Take a question from Roxena. Can you further explain what a so-called inflammatory microbe species means? I understand from you that we all have these, but maybe some are more abundant than others. So what is an inflammatory microbe species? You know, in some ways, Chuck, we're oversimplifying it, but I still think, despite the fact that it's being oversimplified, it's the right way for us to go about describing these different types of microbes because there are certain sort of bad actors in our gut that exist. And when we call them inflammatory species, basically what we're saying, you have to understand that if you were to zoom in, like take a microscope and zoom in on the gut, what you would discover is that there is this mix of different species of microbes. And there is this single layer of cells, just one layer of cells, not multiple layers, one. And it is separating 38 trillion microbes from your immune system. 70% of your immune system resides within the lining of your intestines. All right, this is the predominant location where your immune system resides. So, and the single layer of cells is separating them. And these microbes, they are training your immune system. They are communicating to your immune system. And they have the ability to activate or deactivate your immune system. Activation of your immune system is what we call inflammation. Chronic inflammation, which is the chronic ongoing activation of your immune system, is the root cause of the vast majority of our most dangerous conditions that we face today. Heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, all have elements. I'm not saying it's only inflammation, but they all have elements that inflammation is a critical part of the process for developing these, these health-related conditions. So when we talk about inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory microbes, the inflammatory microbes are the ones that they have, um, uh, they tend to basically activate the, the immune system and create this inflammation. When you have a more uh, dominant presence of these inflammatory microbes, then what that means is you have more representation from the microbes that are actually trying to increase the inflammation, increase the activation of the immune system. But what we need in this world where, again, like our, our most deadly diseases are the inflammatory conditions, what we need is actually to more powerfully represent the microbes that will send an anti-inflammatory signal and will actually reduce the activation of our immune system. And the way that we get those are by consuming high fiber foods. To that end, uh, Michael down in Mexico, 1239, can a high fiber diet also help you sleep better, which goes back to what it was we were talking about at the beginning of the show. I do think that there's um, uh, evidence that a high fiber diet can help you to sleep better. There's a number of reasons around uh, how this could work. Um, part of it is reducing inflammation. Part of it is enhancing the gut microbiome. Um, so yes, I do think that a high fiber diet can actually uh, be beneficial in this regard. And right, I want to say hi to Monica, who's watching over in Ant uh, Amsterdam. And that kind of brings us to a question from Dab. Dab is wondering whether smoking can affect the microbiome. At 12.33, that one came in. No surprise. No surprise. Smoking clearly affects the gut microbiome. I mean, smoking, 
Um, to me, it's hard. It's, you know, the, the, this is just, it goes along the list along with things like heavy alcohol consumption that, um, to the best of our ability, we want to stay with family. I mean, from my perspective, I feel like the evidence is so overwhelming against smoking at this point. There's really nothing that's redeeming about it. I, I also like sympathize with people who smoke regularly because it's very hard to quit. Um, and I get that. Absolutely. It's hard to quit. What? So I think the lay person may wonder, well, if this is smoking affects the lungs, how in the world could it affect the microbiome? Can you in 101 talk kind of walk us through that connection? Well, your lungs directly connect to your bloodstream. You know, this is, I mean, this is a, the key role that your lungs play is that whatever it is that's in the air can then be transferred into your blood. So when we are here sitting and just having a conversation and we breathe in, we're taking in oxygen and that oxygen gets transferred into our blood and then it perfuses, you know, basically it travels throughout our body and gets to our fingertips and our brain and the tips of our toes. And on the flip side, you know, when our body produces carbon dioxide through our normal metabolism, that carbon dioxide returns to the lungs through our bloodstream and the lungs actually extract the carbon dioxide and I breathe it out. Um, so things that you breathe in, if they are toxic, they enter into the bloodstream. They have ready, direct access to it. All right. Uh, let's grab two more. First one comes to us from Mickey at 1241, wondering how to boost the diversity of the gut bacteria if you were tested and only have a small variety. Will eating the diversity of plants introduce said diversity that you're looking for? So the diversity of plants is based upon a study called the American Gut Project. And in the American Gut Project, which by the way, is not just Americans, it's actually people from across the globe. Um, and they were looking at, you know, what is your diet and lifestyle? And how does that associate with your microbiome? And what they found was the single most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome was the diversity of plants in your diet. Specifically, people that were consuming more than 30 plants per week had the healthiest guts. Okay, now, that's an association study. It was not an intervention study. We don't uh, have that uh, clear intervention where the only thing you do, like you don't change anything else, you just change the diversity of, of plants in a person's diet, and you were to like hypothetically keep the same fiber, keep the same plant content overall, just add more diversity. We don't have that study, so we can't say that like this is the only thing that matters. But I do think that there's a reason why you see myself and Tim Spector. Uh, getting behind this concept of diversity of plants. The reason why is it com makes complete sense. Every single plant has unique forms of fiber, polyphenols, and phytochemicals that help to feed and nurture our microbiome and make it more diverse and abundant. But beyond this, Chuck, there's a number of things that we have at this point that have been shown to increase gut diversity, and we actually have randomized controlled trials to demonstrate that they work. The first thing that I would step towards is fermented foods. There's a study done by Justin Erica Sonnenberg and Christopher Gardner. Have you had Christopher on the show? Would you believe that I just did an interview with him at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine last week? Awesome okay. dude. Awesome, he's dude. awesome dude. Yeah, yeah, he's an unbelievable dude. So, and um, uh, so Christopher's at Stanford, professor of medicine, friend of mine on the scientific advisory board of Zoe with me. And so anyway, they did this study. And what they did is they asked people to increase their fermented food intake. And in a period of just eight weeks, by adding more fermented food to their diet, they actually were able to increase their gut diversity and reduce measures of inflammation. This was published in the journal Cell, which is one of the top three or four journals on the entire planet. Um, so 
fermented foods are a great way to to approach this. Um, that that's where I would start. Like to me, these are the these are the golden rules of gut health: diversity of plants and adding fermented food. All right, and the final one, we're circling back to Dab, and this is also a look forward to another interview that we have coming up here on the show. This time with Dan Butner. He's got the new Netflix docuseries coming out as well as his next book. Very soon, we're going to have him on the show here in a week or two. And Dab's question comes to us at 1235, wondering, and you may not know the answer, and it's okay if you don't, uh, whether you think or know if the microbiome in centenarians, if that has anything in common with how long they're living. Have there been any longevity and microbiome studies that have been conducted to your knowledge? There have been. Uh, there have been. And what we actually see is that people who, um, uh, centenarians tend to have more gut diversity into older age. Um, so, and that's a beautiful thing. And if you look at the blue zones, which by the way, I'm a huge fan of the blue zones. I've written about them in every single one of my books, and I will continue to write about them in future books. Um, the, the thing about the blue zones is, you know, we tend to gravitate towards the diet and I do think that the diet is like one of the major learnings, but let's not pretend that it's the only major learning from the blue zones. A big part of this is their lifestyle. One of the most underrated things is social connection, social connection that exists among these people in these communities is powerful. They're going out in their nineties and meeting up with their friends and talking about fantasy football, which is Chuck, what I wish that I could do with you almost every single day. So, um, you know, and this is the kind of thing that they're doing. And because they have those social connections, those social bonds that are very strong, actually that propels them, uh, into health. And we know that strong social connections, not only is good for us from a psychological perspective, but it's good for us from a physiologic perspective including having benefits with with regard to our gut microbiome. And I would imagine that the microbiome of somebody that suffers from depression, anxiety, much different from the person who's living a much happier life. Actually, very clearly established, Chuck, is a great point. And we were talking a, a few minutes ago about inflammatory microbes. And if you look at the pattern that exists in people that suffer with major depression, which by the way, this is not just like feeling bad for a day. This is, this is a, a very serious health-related issue, a mood disorder. Um, people who suffer with major depression, what you discover is that they have overrepresentation of the inflammatory microbes and underrepresentation of the short chain fatty acid producing microbes. All right, man. Well, you know, we covered a lot of ground today. I'm looking at this. We've been going for close to 50 minutes, and I feel like we're just getting started. But the good news is, Dr. B, you're coming back again next month. Uh, but in the meantime, in between time, what do you have cooking up, man? What's going on over on your website, on social media? What's what's crack-a-lacking? Um, wow, man. I've been working super hard. Um, I got a lot of great things coming down the pipeline. Um what I would say for the time being. So of course, anyone who's interested in learning more about my work, if you want to take a deeper dive in terms of one of my courses, I have courses uh, that can help people that have acid reflux, have constipation, have food intolerances or gas and bloating. So we have courses for all of those things. We have my masterclass that's available for people to take at the convenience. All these things you can do at your convenience um, uh, within the friendly comforts of your own home. Um, and, uh, and then for those of you who, uh, may not be interested in the courses, but just want great free content, I have my newsletter and I'm very actually proud of my newsletter. I work very hard at it. And every single week we release a letter. And many times what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm taking the opportunity to take a deep dive into new science that, you know, I find to be compelling and I want to share with my community. So if you, uh, if you have an interest in gut health and you want to learn more about these topics, 
I would love to teach you and it can be completely free. Sign up for my newsletter. All right. So here's the deal with his newsletter. He's being like nice about this. Um, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. It is literally the best newsletter that I have seen. It is chock full of personality. If you enjoy Dr. B's uh, wit on this show, this newsletter is for you. And to borrow a pun, it's really easy to digest. It's not the kind of newsletter with a bunch of fancy words that you need 18 million college degrees to understand. It's broken down so that all of us can understand it. And that really does help to build this sense of a healthier community where nobody feels left out, man. So I'm not even sure that that's what you're going for. But man, you are really hitting the nail on the head with this thing. I love your newsletter. Well, you know, one of the things, Chuck, is that I feel like... uh, there's a part of me that is a teacher. Like these are, I've always defined myself as a doctor. And what I've discovered as I get older, again, I'm starting to sound like my dad. Yeah, um, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I, what I'm finding about myself as I age is that I think there's a part of me that was born to be a teacher and there's a part of me that was born to be a writer. And I'm starting to like embrace and accept these things. And so if you read, if you read my books, I think that you can see that on display that I enjoy, I enjoy writing and breaking down complex topics and trying to make them simple so that you can understand what's actually going on. And so my, my goal, like, I, I, I don't know, I feel like sometimes people write because they're trying to impress their colleagues. I don't really care what they think. <laughs> yeah, I don't, because what I care about is results. Results means that people who are actually reading real people, not, not like, I'm not writing, uh, academic article. I, I do write academic articles. You can find me on PubMed and you can read what I've written. But when you read my books, I'm writing them for you, the layperson, and I'm reading I'm writing them in a way that it's intended to engage you and it's supposed to be fun. And it's also supposed to move the needle in terms of opening your eyes to the possibilities that exist with your health and then getting you motivated to actually go out there and do it. And I regret the fact that our healthcare system does not does not actually offer this to people. And so this is what I'm here for. I'm here to offer this to people. And there's many ways in which you can receive it. And you can receive it by doing my courses or buying my books, but you can borrow my book from the library. You can engage with my newsletter for free, or you can follow me on social media. Either way, I'm here to create great information that hopefully has a beneficial effect in your life. That's what I care about. You do a great job of it. Yeah, I know for real, man. That would be the equivalent of a CM Punk pipe bomb right there. Well played, sir. Well played. Uh, Let me take things home by saying, hey, look, uh, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area or just want the night of your life like no other, join us at the National Press Club on November 7th. That's when we are doing the next big exam room live and in person. And it is a night with the Esselstyn family. We have Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn coming, his wife, Anne. We've got Rip Esselstyn from Plant Strong coming. Jane is coming as well. The entire family is going to be on hand as we honor them for all of their contributions to the health community, pushing for the idea of a healthier diet and just an extraordinary, extraordinary group. And you want to talk about a family whose microbiome you want to analyze. You've got Anne up in her 80s, still tugging tires. I mean, heavy tires. 
up hills on their family farm, man. And she is breaking a sweat like she's in an NFL training camp. And then when she's done exercising in the morning, she goes and she works in the yard. This woman is the Energizer Bunny. That's what Rip told us on the last episode when we played the the audio from the, the live show that we did in New York City. He said, my mom is truly like the Energizer Bunny. She is inspiration. Caldwell going strong in his 90s. He's still out there riding his bike. And we want to get you guys connected with them as we honor them. So that's November 7th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And Dr. B, you better believe one of these days the stars are going to align, our calendars are going to align, and you and I are going to be able to do one of these in person as well. But until then, November 7th is a heck of an event. So um, I hope that you'll be able to uh, to join us. There's a link to pick up your tickets right now in the episode notes. Uh, man, this has been a fascinating show, Dr. B, a fascinating show. I wish that we had more time. I always do. But you are my guy because you are the Mac Daddy of Microbiome, the Gut Health MD, the Pharaoh of Fiber, the Prince of Poop, however it is that you want to put it. The bottom line is every time you're here, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, our health IQs go through the roof, man. So major gratitude for you taking a little time out of your day. Key takeaways, Chuck, eat more plants, diversity of plants, fermented foods, not too much bright light in the evenings, add more bright light in the morning, a couple of cherries or some pistachios before bed. If you feel like you've raised your health IQ by a point or two, go ahead, like the show on Spotify, give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your shows and leave a five-star rating as well. And to that accord, I want to say a special thank you to an exam roomie by the name of Topper who did just that over on Apple left a five-star rating and a nice review. Topper wrote, The Exam Room is my go-to podcast for nutrition info and motivation to work towards optimizing my health. I love this upbeat podcast. And Topper, I love the fact that you took the time to write that and leave the five-star rating for us. Thank you, my friend. Greatly appreciated because that is exactly how the exam room keeps growing and how we raise health IQs around the world. So join us. Let's all work together, build this community to be even bigger and stronger. Join us right now, or just say thank you for something that you have learned by listening to the show. Head over to Apple, Spotify, leave that five-star rating and a couple of nice words, and let's all make the world a healthier and happier place. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to my main man, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, for being here and raising our health and our sleep IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.